Welcome to the fourth episode of Progcast, a podcast for progressives and open-minded people. In this first season, as you know, we are discussing dangerous ideas. And these are ideas that people in power want to censor because they think they're dangerous. And also ideas that sometimes put scholars in danger because people in power don't like them. I'm Scott Roberts, and I'll be your host for today. In this episode, I'll be chatting to Naran Davids, Professor of Philosophy of Education at Stellenbosch University. Now, we became interested in Prof. Davids' work after reading her book, which was written with Prof. Yusuf Wahid, and it's entitled Universities, Pedagogical Encounters, Openness, and Free Speech. And in this book, Prof. Davids defends free speech on university campuses, and she believes that it's fundamental to the project of education. But we'll be hearing more about that in the episode to come. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. So now, one of the things we've been seeing really in South African academia is that there aren't many people defending the concepts of free speech and academic freedom. And so just to start off this episode, maybe you'd like to explain to our listeners a little bit about why you became interested in this topic and you've chosen to devote your energy to it. For me, for a while, I've been thinking to myself, what is the purpose of university? And I think that is something which took me to the next step of academic freedom because academic freedom really for me has to do with the freedom of a university. And I don't think you can disconnect those two. And in, in turn, if we're going to be laying claim to being a democracy, then automatically those three things have to be linked. So the purpose of a university has to be understood in relation to its political context. And I think what pushed us towards writing that book, um, that's Yusuf and I, was something very specific happened on this campus. Um, I think it was 2015, 2016, whereby three students put up posters around the university campus promoting Afrikaner nationalism. But what was creepy about the posters was that they specifically used um, Nazi-era kind of imagery. So you obviously, when you do that, you, you, you're seeking to provoke. I mean, you, you actually want the attention. If you simply wanted to call together a group of students because the, the, the topic of the, of the purported conversation was going to be um, Afrikaners under threat. Now, legitimate conversation piece, but if you are going to go use Nazi kind of symbols, then obviously that puts a whole different spin on things. And it was a huge outcry from this university, rightly so. And students were performing on the Red Square and protesting, rightly so. For me, the problem was, and I, and I said it to my PGCE class on a Friday morning, 8 o'clock, I said, can we invite these three guys into our classroom and actually ask them why they did what they did? And 90% of the class were completely outraged by my suggestion um, in that why would I possibly want to listen to anything that they have to say? And I said, well, they clearly have something to say. And by us shutting them down, which is what the university was doing, and certainly when each time there was any attempt to engage with these students, other students would just shout them down. The problem is that you're not going to be able to engage with their viewpoints. And if you don't engage with those viewpoints, those viewpoints don't go away. They just fester. And so I understand the willingness to listen to those viewpoints as an opportunity for me to get those viewpoints to be reconsidered. And so that's where it started. And that's where the book came from. And, and in and lots of papers thereafter, because it's not only in South Africa where there's a nervousness around academic freedom. Certainly when I've taken this book 
elsewhere to um, philosophy conferences at Oxford University, as well as um, ARA, as well as other places. S- certainly, the, it was really not met with open arms either. Um, we've gone very politically correct. Um, and there are contexts that needs to be considered when we we'll talk about that. So for me, why it's important, it's linked to the issue of the university. And for me, the university ought to be about truth-telling. So I'd like to take a step back and just look at this concept of democracy, because in the book, you talk a lot about democratic education. And I think, um, so I'm a lawyer and I have an understanding of constitutional law. And I do think that some people believe that democracy, in some sense, demands a kind of political correctness, a kind of desire to do what some people believe is the right thing and take the correct viewpoint. Um, And you're somehow being undemocratic if you're not expressing the correct viewpoint. Um, and the concept of democratic education that you seem to be proposing um, is a complete counterpoint to that. So would you like to maybe explain a bit about what democratic education is um, and maybe then whether South African university spaces right now are democratic and are living up to the standard of democratic education? So democratic education for me in relation to speech, it's going to be about unconstrained speech. Now, that doesn't mean that I go around saying whatever I want. It's not about being provocative or harmful for the sake of being harmful. I mean, that's not what I'm propagating. Um, it, and, and often I get, that's the comeback, and that's exactly not what I'm saying. So what I am saying is that democratic education has to allow openness, and it has to facilitate even those viewpoints which we might find repugnant. Why? It will be the only opportunity to engage with it. Democracy is not about shutting down of ideas, but but democracy is is about a set of rights, but it's also about a set of responsibilities. The idea of academic freedom does not negate responsibility. Democracy needs to be preserved. And the only way you preserve democracy is by allowing dissent. You have to allow for disagreement and conflict. It is what makes a democracy a democracy. The moment you try and say to people, that speech is permissible, but that is not. This dress code is permissible, but this is not. The moment you go on that avenue, you are acting undemocratically because you're not allowing me to come into the public sphere as I am. And this, and this argument extends into many other things, like the wearing of, the, of a hijab, for example, or, 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 or any other kind of cultural practices. So we have particular norms in our society, and we see it in our schools, for example, with English, for example, being the preferred language of, of, of teaching and, and, and learning, and, and the accents kids adopt and the whole issue of assimilation. These are all undemocratic practices which schools propagate. And what, what, what a democracy propagates is exactly the opposite that I, it has to cater for multiple dissenting ways of acting, being, and thinking. I, I think that's a really good answer. Um, it's this idea also of power not being concentrated in the hands of a few people, right? That power being sort of largely uh, distributed throughout society. Um, and it's something that we believe also with relation to economics, with relation to who's allowed to express what, um, that each individual should have that power um, insofar as it doesn't harm another person. But is it not true that sometimes there are practical constraints 
on the hearing of dissenting voices. I'm thinking specifically, and you actually wrote this in an article also with um, Professor Wahid, why banning controversial voices is bad practice. And this was about the disinvitation of Fleming Rose at UCT. And we've already sort of looked at that in a previous episode with Professor Benatar. Um, but I just want to get your take on that incident and really your response to the fact that the concern seemed to be that if we heard uh, Fleming Rose at UCT, it would provoke students, there would be issues of safety, and somehow there would be some resultant limitation of academic freedom. I, I, I never could quite understand what Professor or, or Dr. Max Price was, was on about. I, I didn't understand his argument. Um, I think there were pressures around him that obviously led him to saying these things, but I'm not quite sure what motivated his his point. The issue with that, and it's it's exactly picking up what you said early on, is about power. So every society has its own kind of power. It's what um, Foucault refers to as the regime of truth, that there's a perpetuation of power. So we used to have, um, for example, apartheid said that white is power and black is not. And, and now we have a flip side of that, by the way. And, and, so, and so even the whole issue of racism, people seem to think that racism can only go one way, white over black, but that's not true at all. Racism lives in power. Um, and so the whole, so when you say to me that certain people should not be allowed to speak because others are protesting, then what you are saying is that the people who are protesting against the speaker have the power to control the discourse. And that's problematic because that means, so what else are we going to shut down? And, and who decides what is permissible and what is not permissible? I think UCT did itself a huge disfavor, which they will take a long time to recover from in doing what they did, um, especially since that talk was cancelled, I think, the year after Keenan Malik's talk. And he's a huge proponent of, of academic freedom. And um, so for me, the problem, I think what happened there was it's, it's about fear that we are not prepared to, to tackle the, the sort of sacred cows that we have in our society. We, it, 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 it look, it's, it's scary. With any university setting, if somebody's threatening to burn a building down or, or to wreak havoc, I can understand from an admin point of view or safety point of view, you know, I can understand that certain measures would need to be taken. But one of those measures cannot be to disinvite somebody after he or she has been invited, um, especially when this person comes to you in peace. And I would have been interested to hear what he has to say. And then, if I disagree with what he has to say in a very peaceful manner, now we can engage and deliberate. And change minds. Of course, but democratic education is not about that. It's not about the intention of changing the mind either. It's about recognizing that you and I don't have to agree. However, we do have to respect the different viewpoints. So maybe let's just build on that a little bit, because I think it was something that you wrote about in the book as well, um, about this idea of the purpose of education. Is it to instill a certain view in students, or is it uh, a process of offering students a lot of different alternatives so that they can make up their own mind. Um, and many of our members, and maybe this is more pertinent in a UCT context, um, but a lot of them are people who've been through undergrads in the humanities faculty, especially, um, and especially in the politics departments. And there are a few other departments. Um, I don't want to name them in case I get them wrong <laughs> um, on record. But the experience has been that there's a sort of far left political agenda in some of these departments. 
and that lecturers are using their position as lecturers to instill this point of view in students. I think it's particularly noticeable maybe in the politics department where we have certain lecturers who will mark a student down, for example, for expressing a liberal point of view in an essay. Um, some of our members have had that experience. Another experience was a, a lecturer in the politics department set an exam question which said, explain why black people and white people can't be friends. That was the exam question. Um, does this live up to, in your mind, what the purpose of education is in a democratic society? Or are these teachers getting it wrong? The whole point of education really has got to do with getting students to think. I mean, that's for me the ultimate thing. And, and, and it's not possible for me always to expose my students to multiple truths or to multiple ways of seeing the world because I only have so much I can offer you. And, and I have my own blinkers, which I might not be aware of. And so I have to be careful about how much I bring into my classroom of who I am. And lecture identity is very much a part of who we are and, and the content we use and the theory we use. I mean, we have a very big say. I have complete control over the content of my programs. Um, it's aligned to certain regulations, but I know that I'm propagating certain viewpoints here, which somebody before me would definitely not have done. Each lecturer has its own, has her, his or her own agenda. There's no doubt about that, particularly in the social sciences where there's more room for that. Um, the problem, though, is that I've got to be very cognizant of my identity, and I've got to know that I bring that into the classroom with me. Now, initially, for example, when I first started here, I did not fit the idea of a Stellenbosch University lecturer, right? So there was adjustment that needed to happen. And I could feel that tension. I, I could feel it. And sometimes it was verbalized. And I've learned to use that to my advantage. Because part of education really has got to do with disrupting taken for granted viewpoints. And this is where your class and your students become a tool. And I do use them as a tool. I'm, I, don't, I don't think it's a negative thing to say. I am very open with students the moment I start teaching them that I will be using them to my own advantage. It's as simple as that. So philosophy allows me for, allows for deliberation and debate. So it's a lovely subject to teach. I draw on what they have to say, and then I invite a counter. And students are, are very easily baitable. I mean, they, they, they take the bait very easily. And some of them are very volatile. That becomes a teaching moment. No, if you want us to listen to you, take it a notch down. And so... The classroom becomes a medium of how to be a citizen, what it means to interact with people who are different to you, because we're not all the same. Even if you and I have the same race, same culture, religion, we are still different. And so it, the purpose of education is not about getting you to believe what I believe. It's about getting you to think about what you believe and then either holding on to certain things or not. And philosophically, that appeals to me as well, because I think one of the reasons why we care about the freedom of the individual is that we want them to experiment with new ways of being and new ways of thinking, right? These experiments of living that we talk about in liberal philosophy. Um, and education should be facilitating that, it should be allowing people to try on different quotes and different ideas. And, you know, um, you know, maybe I want to change my mind, maybe I don't, but I should be allowed the opportunity to engage in those experiments. Absolutely. And possibly when violence intervenes or, um, you know, we're told to think a certain thing, 
it restricts our ability to undertake those experiments. Um, and that's when it becomes problematic. Mm. Mm. Look, violence, in as much as violence has no place in a society, violence is an inevitable part of any democracy. If you're going to allow for disagreement and you're going to allow for conf- conflict, which is what a democracy does, um, it's what's referred to as the underbelly of a democracy. And it's a part of a democracy and it's a part of our human nature. We would all like to sit here and say, I'm not a violent person. But in a particular set of circumstances, in a particular set of situations where our lives are under threat or something's happening to us, we will act violently. It's, it's who we are. It's, it's, it's something intrinsic to all of us. The issue with a democracy is that it has to be, there are legal processes in place that's meant to combat those violences. And so, for example, if I think about the student protests, for example, and because I work in philosophy, I'm interested in concepts, automatically, if you ask me about the student protest, then I'm going to say to you, what do you mean by protest? What is your understanding of the term protest? Because the word protest does not mean violence. And the irony of what's happening in South Africa with student protests is profound, but students are unaware of it. Because while they are shouting for decolonization, for example, and, decol- and often they confuse decolonization with decoloniality because the two is not the same, they, they, they don't realize that when they enact the violence in calls for decolonization, they, they are actually drawing on the tools of colonization to do that. Because colonization was a force, which was violence. It was it was the um, complete dehumanization of people by violence. Coercion of people. Absolutely, right? it was slavery. It was enslavement. It was it was you were made to feel that you didn't matter. Um, we will clothe you, and we will and we will give you a language, and we will put you into a different religion. Yet it was stripping people of the humanity. There's nothing more violent than that. And um, so it's for me, it's with profound irony when I watch students running down streets, smashing cars calling for decolonization when decolonization is precisely not what you are doing. And so we, we have to begin to enact what it means to act, to act democratically. And unfortunately, South Africa, and, and we often use the excuse that we are, young, we are young democracy. And yeah, relatively we are. And I mean, there's no point in saying to any of us, take your cue from other more older democracies, because you really shouldn't be taking any cues from any other democracy right now, because democracy is under siege globally. But we have yet to acquire the language of a democracy. We, we don't quite yet know how to engage with difference at any level. Um, and that includes academics, by the way. So. Right, and there's a discussion to be had about really how we respond to violence in the classroom. Correct. I think at, at UCT especially, a lot of us um, in faculty have become scared of doing certain things lest students react violently. And maybe there's an onus on us as well to just be brave and to stand up against violence. Um, I understand, though, that it's difficult. Um, and a lot of people think it might be ideologically inappropriate to do so. But maybe what they don't realize is that, you know, standing up in the face of violence is a necessary precondition for protecting and continuing our democracy. Look, I think if you're going to be working in, in a university right now, in this climate that we are in, and certainly in this faculty of education that I'm in, because I mean, education really is, we are preparing the next generation of teachers here. You have to be brave and you have to be bold and you, and, and you have to be prepared to put yourself out there. And I have found myself in that position on many occasions where things are being said in the classroom and students get really upset 
and you, you have to put yourself out there and say, no, I actually want to hear what this person has to say. So somebody used a particular term last year to describe um, a, a, a transsexual in the classroom, and rightfully so, it caused outrage in the classroom. But it was important for us as teachers, these are prospective teachers we're talking about now, to step back from the student identity of just being volatile all the time and actually allowing this person to say what he wants to say. And that was a significant moment because it was really, really difficult um, because the person he was calling out, calling names at was in the room at the time. It was hard to manage. and But it was a good thing because at the end of it, I think he got away from it recognizing that there's harm in his words. And the fact that he was reading this way and, and was allowed to say these things at home doesn't make it okay within a, in, in a particular space. So it's important for us to be prepared to say certain things that other people are not prepared to say. So I'd like to maybe touch a bit on trans activism and gender activism now that you've mentioned it. Um, because also you wrote a, an article in the Times Higher Education publication. Um, and in that article, you stated that academics that don't adhere to a particular line on gender and transgender issues um, have su sometimes suffered intimidation by trans activists or radical feminist colleagues and students. Um, and that seems to be an issue worldwide. And it's an interesting case because I think most of us take feminism, at least, or certain kinds of feminism, for granted. It's, it's a mainstream view in society. Women are equal. We shouldn't restrict the rights of women because they're women. Um, but that seems to have changed tack a little bit in which, you know, there's a view of what gender is um, and, you know, that biological sex is irrelevant. Biological sex is discursively determined. Um, um, what some might call gender extremism. And sometimes if you don't take that view in an educational setting, you're labeled and shut down um, or not heard. Um, an example of that, maybe you'd like to comment on this is um, we had someone inside the health science faculty at UCT. Um, and he's anonymous for, for reasons, but he was concerned about, um, and he works at Gertuskir, he was concerned about the fact that young children were being given sex-changing drugs and surgeries um, before puberty because they had gender dysphoria or because they identified as um, a sex that was opposite to the one that they were assigned at birth. And he wanted to ask questions about what the harm would be to these children in the long run. Right? Should we permit uh, sex change operations and interventions when children are young? And he was told he wasn't allowed to undertake that research um, because it would be perceived as transphobic. And that seems possibly dangerous. Do you have any comments on that? Well, look, I have very limited knowledge of this particular case. Um, but there's often criticism leveled at, at the left for, 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 for trying to dictate the power and trying to dictate the discourses. Certainly, from what you are saying, what would be the harm in that study? Why would his study have been interpreted as transphobic? When research tells us that there are a high incidence of people who late in life actually want to go back to the gender that they were born with. I don't know of many nineteen-year-olds who, with certainty, can make decisions about most things. Um, so that's just my take as 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 somebody who observes gender. Now, of course, gender is fluid. I absolutely agree, and with with the works of Judith Butler, she writes extensively on it. I don't, in terms of 
academic freedom in terms of being allowed to comment on it, certainly if, 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 if I'm of the view, but actually the world only has two kinds of gender, you're either male or female, then I should be allowed to say that. That doesn't mean I don't recognize your right to say that you are not either of those things. And I think that's, that's what people don't get. I'm allowed to have a particular viewpoint which might not be shared by you. That doesn't mean that you and I can't get along. So, so it's, it's, it's the same with religion. You know, people have particular viewpoints, but, and we don't agree on certain things, but that doesn't mean that you and I can't sit around the table and have some coffee. And I think that's where the academic maturity needs to come in. I really can't understand what the harm with that, uh, that research would have been. It's the same thing that we had here also, unfortunately, I think the health sciences now, but originally the authors of the article were actually based in our, in, in, in our faculty. The, the whole article on, on the colored women. I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with that. And, and the outrage, and that caused huge outrage. I, I think, interestingly enough, when we saw the article here in Inside, many of us, because we knew the authors, we were like, but of course they would like this, right? So now, academically, what's the, the wisest thing to do? To write an academic response in which you annihilate the research. And that's very easy. Instead, we went the other road of vilifying and labeling and all kinds of stuff happened and apologies needed to be issued and disciplinary procedures. I don't know what eventually happened to them. Needless to say, there was a lot of murmurings that happened on campus. Um, but academic freedom, should they have been allowed to write that? Yeah. If that, if they feel that colored women are cognitively impaired, allow them to, allow them to substantiate it though. Let's look at that data that they actually have. And therein lies your answer because the data is completely skewed. So you actually can break down the research and actually damage the, the actual study substantially by looking at the methodology and by looking at the data. Because if I'm going to drive into an area where I know there's a high incidence of drug and alcohol abuse, and now I'm going to make an argument that all the people in that area are actually on drugs and they're all colored. Of course you are, because you actually went to go and find that, isn't it? If I'm going to go to the RVB youth camp, and I'm going to look for racism, of course you're going to find it there. That's why you went there. So we construct our research. We, 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 we have a particular question or view, and then we find a way to substantiate that. So, again, if you're going to, and the article was withdrawn, that's not, for me, it's problematic. You should actually allow people to, to engage with that and begin to show how problematic that research was academically. All right, to take a step back to issues about transphobia, I think the counter argument is that trans people have historically been marginalized. They haven't been accepted by society. And because of their historical marginalization, they are particularly vulnerable to opinions which say things like there are only two genders, man and woman, right? Because that erases their existence in some sense. And the offense that's caused by a statement like that can be particularly harmful when it's applied to a marginalized group. And in some sense that, you know, it's violence. People refer to discursive violence. It's that damaging. And on that basis, in order to prevent the doing of that harm, we should restrict those views and silence people who would want to say things like that. I can never support any viewpoint that's going to ask others to be silent. I, I can never... And, and when it comes to university, it's completely... any. Nothing is off limits. That's that's the view. Um, 
we we draw on the work of Jacques Derrida quite extensively, and he's very clear. The university is unconditional. There is nothing which I should not be allowed to say. People don't understand. The more you say, don't say something, the more you increase my vulnerability. The more I'm not allowed to say the K word, the more power you give to that word. The more I say, don't talk about transgender and trans, this, the more you give power to the phobia. It's when we use these words as if they're part of our discourse that we take their power away. Words only harm because they have particular power. And so it's got to be a case where there is nothing which is off limits because the moment you do that, it means somebody has more power than you. Now, the interesting thing about that is if the university understands that, and very few universities do, it actually means that the university is at once powerful and powerless. It's powerful in the sense that it says we will allow for anything to be discussed with respect. And that's, and I'm always saying that because I'm not propagating violence and I'm not propagating harm and, and making willful remarks just because it suits me. Come and talk to me in, in, a, in, a, in a civilized manner and let's have a conversation. The university says we have the power to allow those spaces. And at the same time, in allowing that and saying we will not be constrained because we're university, it is powerless. In other words, we don't have the power to shut down ideas. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of paradoxical role the university plays. But it's an imperative role because it's in that moment that truth arises. And the whole idea of truth, of course, is equally loaded because every single truth is, well, whose truth? And so there are multiple truths. And so in order to get to multiple understandings or versions of truth, you have to engage. So I'm never going to support a view of shutting down any, any question. And there's also an interesting discussion to be had about shutting down a viewpoint based on a marginalized group's offense. Because the minute that that happens, they cease to be marginalized, right? They become more powerful than everybody else because they're able to control the discourse. And as you say, control the version of truth that is heard. Um, and it's quite odd then that they continue to claim marginalization, even on top of having that kind of power. Um, and this was the point that Professor Benatar made. Um, and perhaps that's a, a view that we should be making more clear. Like the minute that you have the power to shut down another person's speech, you can no longer claim to be marginalized. Absolutely. Because the moment you say that somebody else does not have the right to voice his or her opinion, you are saying that your way of thinking and your way of being trumps that opinion. And so the, any idea of marginalization becomes a bit of a redundant argument as far as I'm concerned. And so, yeah, if I would support exactly what you are saying. It's, it's, it, you, you cannot claim marginalization and vulnerability on, your, on, on the one end and on the other end want to claim the right to shut down viewpoints that speak which you interpret as being oppositional to you. Every single individual, every single community, group, whatever you want to call society, has to be willing to listen to the critique of its community, of the individual. I have a particular idea of who I am. I think... I have a particular notion of how I've constructed myself. But I'm pretty sure if you speak to my kids, they're going to tell you, no, is this wrong with that? And is that wrong with that? Right? And they will have a long list of things to say about me, which are incredibly problematic. Things that I might not see, 
things that I might be aware of, but I'm still working on it. It's a developmental area, as I would like to say. None of us are perfect. And so every institution has the same sort of warts, and every community has its own warts, and we have to be able to take the criticism. It's, it's, that's the growth. That's democracy. And that goes back to experiments of living, right? We can't really engage in an experiment of living unless we can actually, or people point out the downsides to our action and the downsides to our choices. Um, lastly, if you just maybe want to comment for a few minutes on, uh, there was a case at Stellenbosch um, that arose in 2016 um, with the Palestinian scholar called Mohammed Zijani. Um, and he seems to have proposed a two-state solution to this Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and that is quite disagreeable to Palestinian rights activists in South Africa or members of the BDS movement. And the question really is, you know, and this is not a comment about whether or not that's a legitimate political cause, but can we limit academic freedom and freedom of speech for a good political reason? So to these activists, um, you know, the occupation of um, Palestinian territory is a political issue and the rights of Palestinians need to be protected. Um, and that is the ultimate goal. And it seems that limiting some scholars' speech or ability to speak um, around the world is a way that that goal is going to be achieved. Um, is that a kind of justifiable way of thinking? Can we treat free speech and academic freedom as a means to a political end? Look, it's been done before. I mean, certainly with South Africa, many academics were not allowed to, to go and present papers abroad because of, of their budgeted state. And it, it achieved its goal. So with, with isolation and economic sanctions, when you isolate, you do achieve your goal. The problem is, is that we are, we're living in a very different kind of world right now. We are borders are porous. Um, we have a very high incidence of immigration and refugees in South Africa in particular. So the world geopolitically is, is changing dramatically. And we are, I, 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 I'm not sure of the stats, but I think we have, we have the highest, we, we're in a state of such dysfunctionality as, as a global community of just displacement of human beings that just don't have a home. And there's so much unrest and war and violence and deaths that we are in a state of despair and hopelessness right now as a global community. I mean, I think that if you look at Syria right now and you and I are having a conversation here as if Syria is not happening, when we all ought to be stopping and saying, oh my God, this is, this is, this is madness, this is crazy. But so that's the state of the world that we are in. And I don't know whether we can afford to shut down each other any more than what we need to. Now, the Palestinian one, and I think I could ask that question, and then people, I'm not saying you are doing it, but I know I often get asked the question because of who I am. And they expect a particular response from me because of who I am. Because remember now, I'm speaking to you as an academic, but I also belong to a particular community, and they, people sometimes want the community response. So, so I'm, I might disappoint right now. And I have had first-hand experience of Palestine, and I have been kept at Tel Aviv Airport for no other reason but for the fact of my name and, 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 and my religious um, beliefs. And I've been subjected to scrutiny by the Israeli government and not being allowed to go through a particular post during 
my movement in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So I've, I've witnessed the, the oppression firsthand. And I know that when I try to go to a conference, um, in Haifa, I was going to encounter difficulty and I had been invited by a Jewish scholar who's a very close friend of mine. And he really wanted me to come to this conference because they were doing, um, intercultural dialogues with Palestinian and, and Israeli students and doing phenomenal work. And he said to me, don't worry, I will meet you at the airport and we'll make sure you're okay. And my response to him was the mere fact that you have to do that tells me that there's a problem. And so I said to him, as a human being, I cannot subject myself to that treatment willingly because I've been through it enough. Now, so that's my personal experience. Would I be willing to speak to Israeli scholars who propagate the view not only of a two-nation state, but who also propagate the view or try to justify the atrocities against Palestinians? The answer is yes. So, and I've engaged with, with, with these scholars in other conferences that we've held, been held in Europe, for example. International Philosophers of Education, for example, has many of those. And there are many Jewish scholars there. And I come back to my, my first point with you. There is nothing that you and I should not be able to talk about. There is nothing about you and your beliefs that should prevent me from speaking to you as if or like you are a human being. Because no matter what your views are and, and, and how atrocious they might or might not be, I know there's a human being inside of you. And so for the sake of what I referred to earlier on, this collective hopelessness we find ourselves in. Hope has to reside in that, in the capacity for human beings to see the humanity in others. And I think when we, when we I know that was another big, big issue in, in university. Uh, again, there was lots of pressure from other bodies, and, and I don't want to go into the whole BDS discussion and, and the uh, Jewish board issues. It's... It can't be the case that we do that. The, 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 of course, we, the university is always under, under pressure from outside organizations. I mean, we had with the language policy as well, where Haleika Khan said, we were, we're taken to the constitutional court, for goodness sake. Fool. But this university has got to hold on to its own truth. And that truth is that we have to be a space of unconstrainedness, unrestrictedness, where there are no limitations to, to our speech. And so, I would be in disagreement with the idea that we should not invite um, scholars from parts of Israel to come and talk to us. We had a similar scenario, for example, with the Faculty of Theology in the project I'm involved with there, um, in and some sort of interfaith program that we were doing. And we were really hoping to invite scholars over, and certain scholars from our side withdrew when they saw the list of people we were inviting. And it became PC gone crazy because we required the people we, we, we were inviting to write up a narrative on their views before they were allowed to be invited. Mm. Invite me as I am or don't invite me. If you, if you need for me to clarify who I am before you invite me, then probably best not to invite me. And so the university errs all the time. And, and, and intentionally or unintentionally, students get the message very clearly. That, that ideological policing is okay. Absolutely. And that there's some voices that are worth listening to, and that there are others who are not. And it's somewhere out there, there are powers who determine who holds that power. 
I think that's a really good place to leave this interview. Um, and I really have to thank you for a really meaningful and enlightening discussion. Um, for our listeners at home, um, we've got one more episode of this podcast, so please give that a listen as well. Uh, if you would like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter where we're most active and the handle is at Progress RSA. You can also follow us on Facebook at Progress SA. You can visit our website on www.progress.org.za. Until next time, keep thinking even when it's dangerous.